Section number 13 of Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Meller of the Silver Hand and Other Stories of the Bright Ages by David Byrne. Lovers of Learning when that learned Irish monk Tathai settled at Gwent, in Monmouthshire, he had twelve pupils and one cow. And excepting his books, he had very little else, so that the milk of that one cow formed a very important item in the daily fare of the doctor and his scholars. In the Wales of the sixth century there were many petty kings, and Gundaloo, prince of Brecknockshire, was one of them. A turbulent person who, with the help of three hundred of his vassals, had stolen the beautiful daughter of a neighboring king and made her his bride. It is to be feared that he stole almost everything that took his fancy. But when his men carried off the poor monk's one cow, its lawful owner immediately started to remonstrate with the robber chief. Tathai was in bed when the robbers came but directly he heard of his loss he set out for the castle of King Gundaloo, arriving there in an important and, as it turned out, an auspicious hour. That very night a son had been born to the king, who seems to have had some knowledge of, even if he did not practice, the Catholic religion. At any rate, he not only restored the stolen cow, but begged the good monk to baptize the newly-born child. Tathai did this very joyfully, giving the babe the name of Kadok. What is more, he promised that when the boy was old enough, he would take charge of his education and upbringing. So when little Kadok, in Celtic, the name means warlike, was seven years old, he was sent to the monk's school informing his master that he had already been taught to hunt and fight. The monk was not a professor either of fighting or of hunting, but he at once began to teach the little prince the grammar of Priscian and Donatus. Many other useful and important things did the Irish doctor teach his pupil. Cadoc not only learnt his psalter, but began to use it. Prayer soon became to him a regular habit, and his attachment to his holy master grew deep. Prince, as he was, he showed himself the very willing and affectionate servant of his tutor, lighting the fire, cooking the dinner, and serving at table. All these things he did for twelve long years, developing as time went on such a love of study that the monk began to hope Kadok might some day wear the tonsure instead of his father's crown. Tathai's hopes were realized. When Kadok reached the age of nineteen, he gladly accepted his tutor's suggestion of a course of higher studies at the famous Irish monastic school at Lismore. After remaining there for some time, he returned to Wales in order to join a renowned British rhetorician lately come from Rome. In order to join a renowned British rhetorician lately come from Rome. 
a professor who taught the humanities after the best Roman method. Unfortunately, this learned doctor was very poor, and so many scholars flocked to him that very soon something like famine made itself felt. It seems probable that the learned monk had taken possession of a deserted farmhouse, for one day Cadoc was sitting studying in his cell and trying to forget how very hungry he was. A mouse jumped on the little table and dropped thereon a grain of corn. It is quite possible, as the old chronicler says, that Cadoc did not see either mouse or grain, but when it returned with a second and third and continued until seven grains lay before the young student's eyes, he began to reason about the matter. At such a time, even one small sack of wheat would be most acceptable, and if only he could follow the mouse, he might at least discover some little forgotten or unheard of store. The supply may have been miraculous. It is probable that Cadoc and his master thought it was so. But at any rate, when they began to search the cellars, to their lasting joy and thankfulness, they found an enormous heap of corn, a supply not only sufficient for their own wants, but for those of the poor of the neighborhood. Though he was heir to his father's kingdom, Cadoc had not the smallest intention of becoming king. Having finished his studies, he began to lead the life of a solitary, with the resolution of building a monastery and opening a school. As he was an only son, he knew that sooner or later he would inherit considerable property. His design was to build a big abbey and open up a great seat of learning and sanctity. At that time, Wales was filled with forest land. The wild boar and wolf were everywhere. From his infancy, Cadoc had hunted both, so that while he was looking for a suitable building site, the appearance of an enormous boar, white with age, did not scare him. Indeed, he was interested in the leaps of the big shaggy creature as it made three bounds, one after the other, turning each time to glare at the intruder. Cadoc took up three fallen branches and carefully marked the three spaces cleared by the boar. Here I will build my church, he said to himself. Here shall be the dormitories and here the refractory. In course of time the great abbey of Lencarven became a reality. This Ecclesia Severum or Church of the Stags was so named because, says the legend, two stags offered themselves to replace two weary monks who found the work of dragging timber too laborious. Lincarvin grew into a magnificent center of usefulness. The labor of clearing the forest and of building the monastery was enormous. Yet directly the monks had finished their domicile, they set to work plowing the land and sowing it with corn. More important still, the abbey developed into a great religious and literary school. First and foremost among its duties were the study of the Bible and the writing out of its various books. Transcription of Latin authors and their commentators followed this, for Cadoc was a scholar of the best type, and, like the poet of a later age, next to divine wisdom he loved his Virgil. 
Like Dante, too, he was a poet. A renowned professor of that day was St. Gildas, well known in Ireland, where he had both studied and lectured, and also at the great seat of learning, Glasenbury. To the monks of this famous abbey he taught the seven liberal arts so successfully that all his pupils became masters. For one whole year did Gildas the wise lecture at Lancarven, desiring no payment but the prayers of his pupils. Moreover, during the same period he copied out the entire book of the Gospels for the use of the abbey whose welcome guest he long remained. With the monk came the monastery, says a Protestant. He had taught for years at the great cathedral school of Armagh, founded by St. an establishment that might fitly have been called a university. Boys were sent here from every part of Europe, and by the ninth century it boasted 7,000 students. For centuries Ireland was known as the land of saints and scholars. Writer with the monastery came the school, and to the gentler spirit a new home was open, a new and noble vocation offered. The sixth century saw schools established in Britain, and the first fruits of learning in the appearance of a native author, the monk Gildas, surnamed the Wise. Pupils from all parts flocked Lancarven, many of them being the sons of kings and chieftains. Like that of every true artist and teacher, Cadoc's motto was decore cum delection, to make instruction pleasant as well as profitable. Years afterwards, his pupils remembered and quoted the little verses and poetical aphorisms they had learnt in the cloister school at Lancarven. One good prince of North Wales loved to repeat two sentences taught to him by Cadoc. Remember that thou art a man, there is no king, like him who is king of himself. We may imagine how many prayers and what severe penances Cadoc offered for the conversion of his father and mother. Fierce and rapacious as the king was, it is clear that he had a certain respect for the Christian religion. The man who begged for baptism for his son, who gladly permitted him to be brought up and educated by a holy monk, was no deliberate hater of righteousness. But when a man who is dear to God begins to importune heaven, we are never surprised at the result. Kedok was not content with prayer and penance. To his father's house he sent a holy embassy of three monks, who, after taking counsel of the lords of the country, began to preach repentance in the king's presence. From the first, Cadoc's mother was deeply touched. The preaching of the monks and the pleading of the queen soon had the desired effect. Our son shall now become our father, she said to her husband. With great joy did Cadoc receive and obey the summons to visit his father and mother. Nothing would content the king and queen but a public confession of their sins. Let all my race obey Cadoc with true piety, was Gundaloo's decree. No wonder they chanted together the psalm, Ex te dominguez in de tribulationis. 
The sincerity and thoroughness of their conversions cannot be doubted. Husband and wife both retired from court and took up their abode in two little cabins at a short distance from each other. There they lived in great peace and content, working with their hands and subsisting on barley bread and cresses. Their saintly son paid them frequent visits, giving them the best spiritual help and instruction and becoming to them a deeply venerated spiritual father. As time went on, the king and queen became more and more in love with solitude and with holy things, each of them seeking a deeper retirement and a more complete union with God. When the day came upon which Gundaloo died in the arms of his saintly son, the latter found himself very rich. Kadok could not rid himself of his inheritance. He could and did use it for the good of the people who now regarded him as their king. For them a golden age had indeed begun. At once, abbot and prince, Kadok proved himself the father and protector of the poor, the courageous and determined defender of his people's rights and liberties. Men always knew when they entered the territory of Kadok. So deep was its peace, so actual its prosperity. Happy indeed were the poor who lived under Kadok's crook, a scepter, at once more gentle and more powerful than that held by any mere secular potentate. The truest of true knights was this holy abbot, ever careful to right wrongs, to defend the honor of women, and to protect the patrimony of the poor. Yet it seems probable that he never had recourse to arms, though he maintained at his own cost a hundred knights and a hundred servants. Besides these, he supported a hundred priests and gave education to all the numerous children sent to him. Fierce were the times and constant the harryings of robber chieftains, of tyrant kings and their followers harp in hand and at the head of fifty monks chanting psalms Kadok would go out to meet and to overcome a band of marauders his courage was unbounded and what these poor pagans attributed to magic was of course nothing but the exercise of that fearless morale force that he in common with so many holy men possessed like a mighty deluge came the saxon invasion its horrors and profanations reached even to the banks of the Severn and of the Usk, and the peaceful domains of Kadok became the theatre of bloodshed and war. As others of his countrymen had done, Kadok fled to Britain, taking with him Gildas. They could not be idle, though content enough to lead the life of solitaries, choosing indeed a cave in the little desert island of Ronak, Disciples from the mainland sought them out and compelled them to dispense both human and divine knowledge. Day after day came the boys and young men of Brittany in their poor little boats to sit at the feet of Kadok and Gildas. Won by their eagerness to learn and, and delighted with the progress they made, Kadok actually set to work to construct a sort of bridge from his island to the coast of France. He had brought with him his Virgil, as well as the sacred scriptures, and from these two books Cadot and Gildas taught their pupils. 
where the wild waves lapped the shores of their little island home walked cadot and gildas boisterously blew the wind as friend talked with friend as one saint held converse with another knowledge was theirs in common the bond that bound them together in closest friendship was their love of god and the souls for whom he died close tucked beneath the arm of saint cadoc was a precious parchment copy of his famous poet virgil precious indeed was that handwritten book for from it cadoc not only taught the brittany children boys who in shallow boats daily left the mainland for cadoc's island school but his affection for it was great, and, with a modern writer, he would have said, every Christian loves to walk with Virgil as long as he can, and he will only leave him if he be obliged to leave him at the last extremity, and with tears in his eyes. On this windy morning there were tears in the eyes of St. Cadoc, tears that were not forthdrawn by the buffeting sea breeze or left upon his furrowed cheeks by the spray of the ocean so much i love him the scholar saint was saying to his scholar companion yet even at this very moment he may perchance be enduring the torments of the damned but gildas holy man as he was for a moment forgot himself there can be no perchance in virgil's case he retorted how comes it, Cadoc, that you can dare to doubt as to the damnation of this pagan poet? Then curious and startling was the thing that happened. Whether for a moment Cadoc relaxed his hold upon the precious volume, or whether a sudden and violent gust of wind snatched the book from his embrace, who shall say? But even as Gilda spoke, away flew the parchment into the air, only to be swallowed up in the billows of a wind-tossed sea. Was Cadoc to regard the occurrence as a confirmation of Gildas's judgment, the judgment that seemed to be, and was, so harsh? To the owner of the book it appeared to be so. His sorrow had been great before. He was now plunged into a very agony of grief. Leaving his friend, Cadoc returned to his cell. Long and earnest was his prayer, firm was his resolution that, until he could feel assured of the fate of one who sang on earth as the angels sing in heaven, he would not eat a mouthful of bread nor drink one drop of water. The tender-hearted scholar-saint fell asleep in his cell, and in his sleep he dreamed a heaven-sent dream. A figure stood by his side and a gentle voice sounded in his ear. Pray for me, pray for me, said the soft faraway voice. Pray for me, Cadoc. Never be weary of praying for me. I shall yet sing eternally the mercy of the Lord. Cadoc had fallen asleep in deepest grief. He awoke joyful and glad. He rejoiced that the good God had heard his prayer. He was filled with happiness when he reflected that henceforward the soul of the poet that he loved would be helped by his daily supplications. For his view of Virgil was that of many another holy man, and with a nineteenth-century poet he would have said, Not for the glittering splendor of the verse, O seer-singer, 
do we count thee dear, Not for the prowess of the Indian spear, The long brave battling with the Dardan curse, But for thy human heart's sake we rehearse, Thy deep lines eloquent with hope and fear. Great was the fame of Cadoc in after years, And many the legends of him handed down By his peasant scholars, and on winter nights about the fire when they told the story of Cadoc's book and how the wild wind snatched it from his hold and carried it out to the sea they knew so well they never forgot the story's sequel for said they on the following morning the fishermen who reverenced him and loved to offer him the first fruits of their toil brought to his cell a noble salmon in due time the fish was opened. Within it was found the treasured copy of Virgil, lost but the day before. This, in any rate, is how they told the story, and this is what they believed. What is quite certain is that the huge salmon and the recovered Virgil came out of the same sea, and it is more than possible that they were both secured by the same fishermen. Though Cadoc was never again to dwell in his own peaceful domain of Lancarvin, after spending some years upon the little island of Roanoke, he returned to his native land. Much as he dreaded the barbarian Saxons, he thought it his duty to live among them, if only to comfort and help the victims of their invasion. And at Weedon, in Northamptonshire, while he was engaged in singing mass a saxon spear pierced his heart and at the very altar itself he died a blessed martyr end of section 13 recording by linda marie nielsen vancouver bc